Welcome to Behind Startup Lines, the podcast where startup founders reveal their personal journeys while building their businesses with a specific focus on sales. Today, we're joined by Tim Ward, CEO and co-founder of Think Cyber, a cutting-edge cybersecurity awareness company focused on transforming human behavior to minimize security mistakes that could cost businesses millions. Tim's journey is particularly captivating because by his own admission, sales hasn't always come easily to him. He's had to embrace vulnerability and step out from his comfort zone to grow as an entrepreneur salesperson. In this episode, Tim discusses the evolution of ThinkCyber's product vision and highlights the significance of networking, even if it feels daunting to engage with strangers. He also shares thought leadership strategies that have helped him raise awareness and establish credibility amongst prospective clients. I've had the privilege of knowing Tim for several years and have witnessed his remarkable transformation from a hesitant salesperson to an authentic rainmaker, and I'm confident you'll find his story both enlightening and inspiring. So without further ado, let's dive into this fascinating conversation. Tim, great to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm good, yeah, and it's great to be here. Thanks, Phil. Great, thank you. I thought that we could start off, Tim, with you telling us a little bit about Think Cyber and the journey that you've been on before we get into the nuts and bolts of what it takes to win customers and grow. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we've been going for about five, nearly six years now. So I think we can still call ourselves a startup. Um, certainly still relatively small, but I think punching above our weight. Um, as co-founders, we're XBA Systems, so we're kind of part of being in the cyber world for a long time. But obviously, the corporate world's really quite different than jumping out and and being a uh, a founder and, as you say, uh, suddenly a salesperson, which is which is not my background at all. Um, but I think cyber, yeah, we're, I mean, we're all about delivering uh, real time security interventions, about driving behavior change for our, our clients and making that measurable. So it's a really exciting place to be. And I think we really feel like we are disrupting and and creating a bit of a movement within the business to be within the, the industry to be thinking about behavioral change, behavioral science and applying that to this world. Great. Thank you. Now, you have a background in IT architecture, if I'm right. How did you transition from BAE and also I think you work for local authority as well at one point to, to building your own company? Yeah, I think it's um, so myself and my co-founder were were chatting a bit after I left BA Systems. I was doing a bit of kind of IT contracting and you're right, I was, I was an enterprise architect. Um, I mean, I suppose in that role, it's it's one of the brave IT people who goes out and actually speaks to other human beings, um, which is um, obviously not everyone in IT wants to be doing that. And so I've always perhaps been the interface into into the business. Um, we've we've joked joke with Mike about the fact that uh, in a conversation, I'm I'm the outgoing one in that I'll look at the other person's shoes, um, whereas he's just looking at his own. But yeah, so it was it was quite a, a transition to go from that that world of, of IT architecture, running departments where I was internal IT, so I wasn't particularly client facing. Um, but I suppose you you just have to do all these things. You suddenly find yourself um, having to go out and talk to people, and 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 you are passionate about what you're doing because you're the founder and you're the one coming up with this idea. Um, but you also have to go out and do the payroll and run the expenses and, and do everything. So you, and I suppose that's one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about the journey is, is throwing your hand into different things and, 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 and trying these things out. And some you find you can't do and you need to pay other people to do for you. And others you, you find that you, you start to learn to do. I still wouldn't say I am a, an expert salesperson, but I've obviously had to kind of find my feet and, and learn how to do that. And how, where did you start? So that taking that initial step, even if you'd had client-facing experience before, must have been quite daunting. Where did you start? I think when I look back at it, I realise that what what I have become is a relationship builder, and that um, and even that wasn't necessarily a, a skill set. But um, and I, I am naturally quite reserved and British, so I'm not I'm not that kind of bombastic sales type person um and to be honest when i see people doing that to me i know i'm being sold to and it jars slightly so i think perhaps as the founder your sales style is more about um speaking passionately about why it's different why it's interesting getting people on board because you're saying something new 
Um, but in terms of like the very first sales, I think that is a mixture of luck and judgment. Um, I mean, I was actually doing an entrepreneurship course at, at, at Cambridge University and I got shouting to the IT team um, and it turned into an opportunity because it was good for them to be showing that they were engaging with the innovation that university was doing and it was good for us but um uh, it was also just as an interesting anecdote for, for other founders it made us have to actually pivot because we realized we were out talking to people about this amazing vision this amazing thing we could do and people were getting excited but we didn't actually we hadn't finished building that yet so we didn't have anything to sell so we very quickly sort of slightly pivoted to build a much simpler aspect of the product that would be ready quickly and we could sell and that is now actually a pivotal part of the product um it's a key part that, that we always sell plus the, the really whizzy bit but it was interesting because it it forced us to it's great to get people excited but then you've got to be able to deliver on that you've got to have something you can actually sell them to start that that journey that that's really a key lesson isn't it i've seen a lot of startup founders or, or certainly teams that think about building this incredible product with all of these bells and whistles when really what you're trying to do, first of all, is build something that solves a very immediate problem for a customer. And if you can get that right, even in its simplest form, it's proof that you've got something that the market's prepared to pay for. And of course, we don't know that until someone says, yes, I'll buy that. Um, so you've got your first customer working uh, through a connection. Where did it go from there? How did you build on that? Yeah, and that, and I think that's interesting because I, I mean, I've, I've done consulting in, in in the past, and I I kind of uh, I, I set up my own little consultancy, having taken um, uh, redundancy, in fact, uh, few, well, quite a long time ago. And the first project's easy because that's kind of the project you leave with. It's the second project <laughs> that's the kind of how do you go out and win that? Um, and in this case, I think we it, it was constant networking and putting ourselves out there. And I mean, I think I've talked to you about, but I mean, I. I don't particularly like networking. I, if I walk into a room with people who are already talking, it's just, I, I hate it. Because even though you know those people in that room probably don't know each other, your perception is that they all know each other and they're all busy talking to each other and you can't interrupt. So it's not it's not that sort of networking I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's almost throwing yourself into as many opportunities as you can. So we signed up for quite a few accelerators and there's a bit of a joke of kind of like how fast can we actually go like i mean we have done a lot of accelerators but it's because each one is bringing new connections and, and, and new people um and i think there's there's that joke isn't there that kind of the, the more the more i um people being accused of being lucky but the, the more i practice the lucky i get so i we just got out there and met people and that and that sort of it was serendipity i think so for example on one of our accelerators one of the other startups was was at a drinks event that we didn't even go to and mentioned us and that turned into two leads one of which closed within a sort of six to eight months one of which has only just closed four years later so it's that building relationships starting to talk to people and then these things start to kind of pay back and it, it does take a little while sometimes and that's that's been one of the kind of biggest and hardest lessons that these things do can take a long time especially as a startup so we were talking to a very big organization we weren't ready to sell they weren't ready to buy but over time we've maintained that relationship and then eventually we've, we've got our biggest sale yet so it was well worth the wait how did that relationship change over the time it took so we often hear about key stakeholders who buy into uh, a provider vendor who then obviously move on to other roles or move out of departments. But when you were working with a big company like that for a number of years, did it change shape? Did the number of, did the people making the decisions or influencing decisions change in that period? And how did you stay in touch with them? Yeah, and that that is um, <laughs> a nightmare, but also a blessing sometimes. So we've, we've been on both sides of that. So we have had some really big opportunities that were absolutely flying. We'd done trials, they were ready to buy one stakeholder left and then in this particular another example the, the second stakeholder left and with that i mean we had broken a bit further into the organization but not enough to cope with losing the two key stakeholders involved and that and so that one that's gone away i'm still trying <laughs> i hope that one come back this particular uh, the other one I, I was speaking about um yeah i mean we spent about a year probably maybe longer with one stakeholder who then did move on but um 
we 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 stayed there we built relationships with the the kind of the the, the next person um actually and it's quite an incestuous world actually people do move around i mean it depends obviously on the industry but we were lucky enough that someone we've been speaking to in another business then came in and took the role at this this business we've been talking to um and uh and so we already had a bit of a relationship um the people who've left that business have gone on to other businesses and now we're we're cultivating trials and opportunities there so this this one initial opportunity um at the moment has the possibility to turn into three big corporate opportunities and that's and that's i suppose that i mean i I hesitate. I don't want to say it's about networking because it's not. It's not that sort of networking where you're you're just going out to parties. It's about just building relationships within the world, um, trying to have something interesting to say that's a bit different, um, being supportive and and not necessarily kind of critiquing the status quo too harshly, um, because the people you're trying to sell to are out there doing really good stuff, and and you're trying to just steer them slightly more into into a new way of doing stuff but it doesn't mean that what they're doing is wrong so that's that's quite a challenge as well because you've got to be disruptive but you can't be destructive sort of, yeah uh, rude about, about what yeah. people are already doing yeah it's a fine line isn't it between disruptive of the market with innovation and new ways of doing things and being destructive um by causing chaos and mayhem which is the last thing customers need because they're under an immense amount of pressure anyway uh, I think what I refer to the way you describe it, Tim, is almost the network effect. It's an important part of selling that when you you have stakeholders that do move to other companies, they do take your message with you. If you've done a good job and a good job is, you know, did you help me start to address some of the issues that I have in my, my business? But I'm also interested in the ones that perhaps you only had one or two connections who moved on and then how you have to start again. I mean, any advice on what you do differently? if you uh, could stay connected to more people in that company, how might you do things differently this time? It's, it's a really tricky one because I know, and I mean, <laughs> in fact, I have within my sales automation tool, a little rule that if a deal's running and it's only got one contact in the system, I get set a, a task to broaden the contacts. Do I ever do that task? Not always. It's not, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, you, you have a, you have a stakeholder or you tend to have a stakeholder if you're lucky they will bring other people in and i know i know the theory of kind of trying to encourage them to and i i know i should get better at that um but there is a little bit of a kind of you don't necessarily want to upset upset your stakeholder by trying to sort of clamber above them and say oh can i can i chat to the CISO? or can i chat um so i think it's it's the same polite and friendly relationship building that you're you're trying to do but um widening it out offering to help them do demos because quite often i mean one of the challenges and, and we've spoken about this before that you you need to turn these people into someone who who's selling you internally uh and how well you equip them to do that can really be important and so we often find ourselves offering saying, look, we'll, we'll give you all the material, but if, if you want us to jump on a call, even if it's like five minutes with the CISO, just to show them this or some senior director, just tell us and we'll find a way of making that happen because it, it often helps if it's you there presenting because you can deal with the objections, you can answer, and you can bring in kind of, well, other clients are doing this. So um, I don't think I've got an easy answer to that. It's, it's still something we're... We're, we're battling with and i've still got lots of those tasks to say broaden contacts in organization <laughs> get out there and find some other people um just in case because yeah if you're in enterprise sales and it takes a year or so then you will you will lose stakeholders and that's your client base yes it's a large enterprise buyer um you've got some pretty impressive clients i don't know if you want to go into them here but that's your customer base it's a long sales cycle they're bigger deals generally or more complex deals yeah, and I mean it varies, and we've um, we do have those big, big enterprises of kind of um, one of which is like hundred thousand staff, and um, and so, but we've tried to create a mix and also um, have, have built build in those kind of mid tier, so maybe sort of one one thousand two thousand staff because generally those those guys can be more agile, they can move quicker, they can they can buy things 
uh, faster. And that's from a revenue perspective, you can't always be chasing these these really big ones. Um, and in some respects, the really big ones, if you if you apportion that organization up into multiple clients, we'd be making a lot more revenue because obviously with volume pricing and tiering, you, you start to let, make less money. But so we're trying to have a mix of the two. Um, the big guys, because they, they have clout, they're good names, they're good, good logos and, and labels to be talking about. Um, and they, they create um, platforms for publicity because they quite often have bigger teams solving this problem. They run events, they get involved in events and that, that can really help us as well. Great. When you started then, Tim, did you have a very clear idea of what your ideal customer profile looked like? Or did you say we're going to go after these types of uh, prospective customers from the outset? Or did that, that evolve over time? It definitely evolved. Um, and I think we we started to learn because for some reason, I mean, I think because of the accelerators and things we were involved in, they were they were sort of things to do with government. We were meeting really big organisations and we very quickly realised that they were going to be hard work. They were going to have whole departments to create spreadsheets for us to fill in to justify how secure our product was in order to install it. And and there were so many stakeholders you had to satisfy. And um, and whereas if you could meet someone who 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 was the IT uh, IT and security department, um, then they and convince them, then that, that then then it's going to happen. Now obviously they've got less resources, they're smaller, so um, so we we almost created these two customer profiles this idea of the mature organization who who had tried everything else and now needed something that worked and was more targeted and then we had the small organization who who just kind of got it who who didn't want to start the traditional way and wanted to to do things right from the outset and and you can see that our customers do kind of break into those two two types what we've talked about in the past is that recognizing those from the outside is it's not like say oh it's everybody in this sector it it's there are aspects of their internal culture and aspects of the the stakeholders that you can't readily tell from outside and so i think we that's probably steered a lot of our approach to sales which has been very sort of linkedin and thought leadership led because you're almost trying to attract people who connect with your message um and a, cer a certain person set me a challenge in the year 2020 to uh, post something on LinkedIn every day. And I think you only set me six weeks, didn't you? And this is where my slightly obsessive nature took off. Uh, it was the same year that I set myself a challenge and ended up running every day of the year. So it was a bit, I was in a particularly obsessive mode at the time. Um, and I ended up posting pretty much every day for a year. Um, and it, it worked absolute wonders for us. I mean, it was in the time of the pandemic, and so everyone was at home, and probably LinkedIn got a lot more action. But it really created us a following of people liking our content, sharing it, and we were actively then connecting to new people and making sure that we were then posting new content every day. And it and that that really took off for us, and I became sort of thought leaders within the uh, within the industry. I think. And then that led to you, you do more events now, conferences, more speaking engagements. It gives you, I guess, that that permission or that profile to to get involved. Yeah, I think so. And 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 one of the things, the feedback we get, and I would really recommend this stuff is those talks do not have to be sales talks. And and actually, we get fantastic feedback on our talks because they. I mean, yes, we drop into the the product and the well if you're going to solve this actually obviously the easiest best way to is this tool but you want to be putting out there takeaways and a new perspective and something interesting but things people can do to solve their own problems and obviously they know that they can solve them better with your tool but we get that really positive feedback of that was really interesting that was really different that was really useful you're you're sort of in that instance you're almost selling your yourself and your thought leadership so that people like you and connect to you and and you're that's the beginning of the relationship and then eventually they'll go actually i'd really like to understand a bit more about exactly how red flag solves that problem and and, and then and then you're onto a winner but and it's i don't know it's it's, it's i suppose it's reciprocity isn't it like you're and you're, you're giving something useful and then and then hoping that people appreciate that and then and they they engage that way but i've we've all sat through these kind of really hard sales pitches that 
they're meant to be presentations at these events. And, and a lot of people go to these events to hear something new and they're just being sold to and they, they people don't enjoy it. And so don't do it. <laughs> it really annoys me. Yeah. Yeah, good advice. Because what you're also tapping into there is perhaps the most powerful driver for selling, which is emotion. If, if you think people buy on emotion, they rationalize a purchase decision afterwards, but their initial decision to do something is based very much on emotion. You know, I like this person. I like these ideas. I can work with this. And then it's a case of, yes, but can I afford it? And can I implement it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Have I learned something? Do I, do, was, was that an enjoyable experience? Was it, was it interesting? Did, did I, did I actually enjoy it? Cause it didn't feel like I was being sold to. Yeah. One of the, the, tips that I often talk to founding uh, sales founders is around this idea of adopting what I call the buyer mindset rather than the seller mindset. Uh, and I have this belief that as founders, you're obviously you're pitching for money, you're talking to investors, you're, you're doing you're wearing a lot of different hats. And when you wear that, when you put that sales hat on, because it's, a, oh, I'm in sales mode now, I've got to go talk to a customer. Is there a danger that you you either slip into the wrong mindset? And one of those mindsets could be, oh, as I'm talking to a prospective customer, in effect, what I'm doing is I'm talking to another investor. And and how does that manifest itself if it's happened to you, Tim, when you think, oh, I'm, am I pitching my investment thesis here or am I pitching my solution to the product? Does, does that happen? I'm not sure. I think I, think I see those as... Is quite different. I mean, I'm not. I don't think I'm a very salesy salesperson. So, uh, and in fact, I've kind of had conversations with people, and I read a lot on the internet about kind of the phrases to use, and 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 I've been on the other side of having some of that done to me. And I, personally, I, it 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 jars sometimes where, where you get into that. And so, what 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 impact is that having on you? And and that all, all that kind of like. And you're like, stop trying to manipulate me. <laughs> like. I like we can we can have a conversation about what's working what's not working without necessarily having to go down that route and so i don't now whether that means i'm i sell more slowly or less effectively i'm not sure i mean I, and may, that that might maybe maybe the case but i um i i'm really just quite enjoying a conversation around what's working what's not what what what's the theory that we've we've learned about what should work and how have we built that into a product and can people see how that could help them and um and we're fortunate in that when we when we then show them the product they go wow never seen anything like that that's great and that and that obviously so then the product's helping <laughs> helping us sell but um i think i think the investor pitch is slightly slightly different because i suppose they want to hear about the vision and the potential and, and where you're going to go to grow this amazing company that's going to make them loads of money. Whereas I don't think your customers necessarily want to hear that. They want to hear about how you're going to solve their solve their pain. So I think I can keep those quite separate in the conversations I have. Great. Thank you. So was there a tipping point as you were having these conversations? It sounds like they took a long time to start to uh, shift into buying discussions. But was there a tipping point where you saw, okay, we, we've either got this process or this pitch off to a T now, we know the right people to speak to, we're starting to see quicker response? Or is it just, it just takes the time it takes to get to this point? I think, I think there was a, a tipping point and it is definitely going faster. And I think that that switch did come in about 2020 with this kind of, this posting every day, this building up thought leadership, um, running our own webinars and so we then built a bit of a following of, of practitioners who were hearing us saying something new and interesting and so we now it's actually a relic within the big corporations who who have teams doing some of this it's a relatively small and fairly incestuous world with people moving around within the organization so we we now know a, a lot of practitioners and they're not all our customers but we know them and we chat to them we see them at different events and we know what they're doing and um and that i think has has sped things up a little bit and it means that you start to get recommendations so you'll get people contact you say oh well i know so and so from so and so and they they said this is great and and so that um but and so i think we had this kind of initially the scrabble around was like we haven't got enough leads we're not doing enough demo calls 
um, possibly now we've got so many demo calls, we're not doing the follow-up as quickly as we should. Um, and obviously the enterprise sales, then that they do take a long time to close, but not all of them do. I mean, some, some things will close in, in, in four months, I think is our, one of our, our quickest. And so it, it can be really quick. Um, so we, the, the kind of founders struggle, I suppose, especially when you're bootstrapping like we have been, is is that kind of invest in this, great, right, now we've got loads of demos. Oh, crikey, now we need to invest in someone to do all the demos. Uh, right, okay, and oh, now we need to invest in someone to build another bit of the product that we promised. And it's this constant kind of shuffling forward. And uh, and I suppose that's why we're now at the point of saying, right, we need to get out there and get some... Get some. We've proven this works. I, I think we, we, we've got these these early customers and, and, and we've shown... A, a relatively repeatable process now we're ready to kind of press the button and get some big investment and actually actually go for it that content strategy I've, I've always been a big believer of that how do you educate the market bring something new to the market and i remember very clearly the conversation we had about you starting to post on linkedin i mean it, it looked like it scared the hell out of you at the time which is uh, you know write something every single day for six weeks and and six weeks is that habit forming period. So once you're into it, you did it brilliantly. I mean, you you pushed yourself and you came up with ideas. Today, it's a bit easier to come up with ideas about what to write with, thanks to uh, chat GPT and tools like that. But where did you start? How did you step back and go, okay, what am I even going to write about to get this content strategy going? I, I was quite scary. And I think at first I I turned to the the simple stuff and that almost made it more scary because like, well, we, we follow... Um, in some of what we do, we've applied theories like DJ Fogg's model and um, the East model, and that's great. So the East model is five or six posts because you've got each of the letters, that's four, um, you've got the intro post, and then you've got the pull it together the end post. So that's brilliant. That's 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 six days sorted. Um, and so having, but then I exhausted all of that stuff fairly quickly. And so, um, and you, you, you'd push me a bit to just post stuff about uh, myself and what I'm seeing. Initially, I didn't really go down that route. I, I still felt that felt a bit a bit odd. Um, but and so I was subscribed to various newsletters just around behavioural science. And and what I would do is when I would read something, I would just think, okay, well, what what does that look? However tenuously, what does that look like if you apply it to the world of security and security awareness? Um, or like, what's the what's the backing psychological theory behind that? Uh, what's it's like emotion? It's reciprocity. It's whatever. What what's the security awareness version of that? And so then you could do a link to an article saying this is interesting, but in security words, and that that just created me so much content. And then then I started to get, as I said, I was doing this crazy run every single day for for the leap year, um, all to get a virtual badge, which is just insane. Um, uh, I did raise some money in the end, but, um, but that, that then gave me, cause that was all about motivation. So I was then started posting about that and like, what was it that motivated me to do that? And how do you form habits around things like that? So it, then it, you almost kind of relax into it. And, um, and some of the posts that get the most reaction are the more personal ones. I mean, you still, it still needs to be relevant. But for example, when we when we won a won a, a prize, um, we were so excited. We didn't sort of make a glossy thing. I just got paint and wrote in red pen with a wobbly hand, winner on it, and posted that. And that's probably one of our biggest posts. Still, we've got sort of thousands and thousands of impressions. So it's that kind of being real and being human. I think um, connects quite well. Um, I mean, we're still learning what what connect because some some sometimes you'll post something and you think, oh, this is brilliant, and it gets no views at all another time. So you're always fighting the algorithms, um, but I think it's it's been natural and just keep keep on applying your world and your theory to to, to the wider world. And I think it, it, it I don't know, it's there's an endless source of posts out there. I haven't tried using ChatGPT. That feels like cheating to me. So. I'm, <laughs> might help it hone the words but yeah it'll, it'll help you with coming up with ideas um and it's yes i mean it can just speed up the process of, of writing um and if you're not familiar with it have a little play with it because it's it's quite a game changer 
Um, so you, we're using LinkedIn. You were very active on LinkedIn. And I think that that personal message works so well because, again, it ties into the human side of what we do. It's like, do I like this person? Do I want to do business with this person? And they always perform very, very well. But what about beyond that? Did you use any other um, channels to to get your message out there? We've already talked about speaking events. We talked about LinkedIn. Was there any others? Did you do long form? Did you Did you swap content with other sites? Any other tips that worked well for you? Yeah, a good question actually. We haven't we haven't done a huge amount of swapping content. Every now and then I seem to remember someone approaching saying, Oh, we can write you an article or and and it just wasn't especially in the world of cyber, I think you, you get this people thinking about an article just about cyber. It's like, well that's quite it's quite a lot of cybersecurity and it's quite nuanced and so that, that didn't really work for us. Um we events we, we, we do a lot of events, but we very quickly found there is absolutely no point in going to an event and just having a stand. I mean, maybe that works for some businesses, but we we just found it just didn't work for us at all. Um, we we felt we had to have a have a talk, so you've got that platform to say something, and that that could be expensive. Um, and and one of my frustrations is certainly at some of these bigger bigger events, um, certainly some of the big sponsored ones, they. I don't know how they're getting any innovation to their customers because they, the entry level to, to have a talk is so high that startups can't afford to go. So you just get the same old, same old people speaking. Um, how can that event claim to be innovative if it's just got all the big, big brands already speaking because they're not the ones coming up with new stuff? Um, so that frustrates me a lot. I mean, there are other better events out there who, who, who manage to tier it and find ways that startups can be on certain stages and say something new. And we, um, we, we tend to have tended to like going to InfoSec Europe, particularly when it was in Olympia, because everyone knew that upstairs, the quiet bit was, was where the innovative firms were. So you'd get people who were just going up there to meet the startups. And that, and that's where we, that's actually where we wanted to be. We didn't want to be downstairs on the noisy floor. I wonder if the real innovators at the customer level, seek out those opportunities because they know they're only going to go and hear their competition brag about what they've achieved when the innovation is in, you know, on the second quiet floor, as you described. And, and that sounds like a great strategy. Go find those niche events, almost like fringe tech events to start to build your story. There are some out there. I think it's, it's quite hard to, to find. I mean, even some of the, the ones that are kind of slightly more techie it's, it's big business it's big business there's a, there's a lot of money to be made from running these events and so they are they are not they're not cheap um what what some of them do well is kind of run little competitions for for the innovative organizations um and we i mean we quite often try and um find ways to speak with our customers as well so that that creates opportunity and gets gets people a bit more excited if you can come and speak to a case study so that can help get you on a panel or a stage because um, it's not just you. Are you finding that customers are more willing to come along and stand alongside you or give you case studies? So a challenge has always been getting uh, nameable case studies for you to be able to use the market. Some companies are very private about it. How, how do you find it? Yeah, I think it really varies on, on the company um, and... Um, I think there's a there's a bit of a sense in the world of security awareness that we're all we're all in it together to to make things better. So um, we we've done talks with people who uh, will also do. They're not necessarily even our customers yet. They're just people who are in the in the industry um, have got something really useful to say, and together we can have a really good chat about about stuff. And so we will we'll do talks with people who maybe in two weeks time might go off and do a talk with a with a competitor um but it still makes for an interesting conversation that that people want to listen into so um i don't know whether that's different in 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 other other markets but it seems to be um in the security awareness market people just all feel like they're trying to trying to help people so they just want to get their message out there Great. So can we talk a bit about team structure setup? You've been talking about doing a lot of the sales yourself. What you've also described is a lot of the marketing efforts, which you too have to do in a small team. But what does your sales organization start to look like in the early days? Where were you making your first hires and what does it look like today? 
Yeah, I mean, we still are relatively small. So um, in the in the very early days, uh, we made a quite a junior hire just to kind of support some of the process around what I was doing. So getting out there, putting putting the um, contact messages out on LinkedIn to try and build build new contacts so that then when we were posting the content um so i i focused on the content but someone else was doing some of the connections for me um that um that kind of transitioned into uh, getting someone involved who was more of a marketeer so we've got a fantastic sort of marketing um activity going on now so that just because i think it, it's quite ad hoc as a founder doing that <laughs> And and so you get to the point where you really want to systematize it, and we we always going. Oh, we really need to get a blog out, and so now we're now we're much more like we will do a newsletter every month. We will get a blog out, and and we will post every every twice a week. We're at, <laughs> I mean, if not more, if we if we think of things, but we have a, a regular, we will definitely post twice a week. Um, and so that that was quite needed, and I think obviously different people will have gone about this in different ways, but because the content. And the LinkedIn felt so important to us and having something to say and having something new to say and also advertising the events we're going to go and speak at, um, marketing. And it's not like massive marketing, it, but it's just kind of having someone who can make sure all of that happens. And that, that's been working brilliantly for us. Um, and then we have done some outsourcing of, of, of the sort of cold calling SDR type activity, which has worked fairly well to get to get some sort of those demo meetings. Uh, and so we have then um, got our own junior SDR. Um, but it is that, as I said earlier, that kind of constant creeping forward. And we're now at that point thinking we really need to start to uh, specialise the team. So if you've got anyone listening who thinks they are the absolutely pers- person to be both an account exec, but also lead SDRs and, and really kind of make a change, then we're, we are actually advertising that role on LinkedIn at the moment. Um, but but drop us a line because it, it feels like we're at that point where I mean, I'm doing demos and I can do that founder side of things, but we, we have a lot coming in now. And so having a, a, an account exec or someone who um, may be a bit more senior, I suppose, business development manager who can actually lead that. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a set. I mean, we've talked about before whether there's a set rule book. I think it it's a little bit different for each company and it's almost learning where, where your gaps are. Um, what? What what have we got too much of that we need to deal with? And at the moment, we've actually almost got a, enough demos coming through the door that we need to make sure that we're kind of closing them those down and actually seeing them through. It's a bit like parenting, isn't it? No one gives you the book um, to bring up a family, but you kind of figure it out as you go. And, and building a business is very similar. You know, you, you know, there are lots of mistakes you make along the way, but you learn and you learn quickly. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely, and yeah, and we and we've had some great successes with some of the LinkedIn stuff. And um, I think we, we've also had failures where we haven't kind of perhaps um, always initially systematized or, or planned for some of some of the trials we've done to make sure that they're as successful as possible. And now we've realized that, well, that's, you, you can't just kind of go into that blind. So now we've realized that needs to be quite well systematized, got really clear outcomes. Um, and and sometimes I worry that we kind of you get you're getting lots of leads and then you're almost wasting them because you're trying to balance the time between finding new things, chasing the old ones, keeping your current customers happy, but also as as the CEO getting out there and doing investment conversations and and all those other things. We're operating Tim at the moment when we do this recording uh, in quite challenging times. Uh, particularly with salespeople missing quotas, uh, bringing deals over the line uh, is taking longer than typically. How are you finding the market currently and, and what have you experienced changes certainly in the last or the beginning of 2023 uh, with the deals that you're talking about? Yeah, it's it's interesting to try and see if it's having an, an effect. I mean, We've definitely got some clients who are saying, right, the budget lines have been drawn. So, um, but that <laughs> that could happen any year, to be honest. There, like having having been in big corporate, the budget line's always going to get drawn somewhere. Sometimes you're in it, sometimes you're not. Um, and and different businesses have different priorities. And so, um, we are seeing a little bit of that. Certainly, we um, we've had some opportunities that look really interesting within 
government and health. Um, but those guys are so up against it, with lack of investment that that we that they 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 just haven't got the budget at the moment, which is which is scary because they do need they do need the tools as much as anybody. Um, so so that that's a definite area where we've noticed um, noticed problems. Um, but yeah, it's hard it's hard to tell really. I mean, cybersecurity is a relatively strong market because the the problems are still are still there. People still do need to tackle them it's not it's not a luxury um but i think that things have slowed a little definitely tim we've spoken in the past about the dynamics between sales and other departments you've talked a bit about working in marketing but what about on the development side what's the relationship like with the product team and the engineering team um with sales and and the ideas they bring back from customers about enhancements and improvements to the product yeah it's a really it's a really challenging area and i think i mean i i, I am helped a lot by my co-founder mike kind of bringing me back down to earth about kind of what's realistic and what we what we can actually do and and, and deliver um but but you've got to be you do have to be customer centric to, to quite a strong degree i mean we, we we do need the roadmap to be to be led by what customers want so we've we've tried to work hard to understand how often are these requests coming now if it's a little thing or like can we do this okay yeah we can so let's see if the project goes far enough we can we can make that happen but in other cases like right we need to be on an entirely different platform let's see how often that's coming up let's how see how many people are talking about it before we think about whether that's something that that, that we should do and it is a tension that that i think you you need dev need to focus on actually delivering and make sure they deliver but 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 as sales you do have to be customer centric and, and listen to them so i think um it, it's a constant balance but i think i think we're just about getting it right um i'm not sure i have any kind of specific advice but make sure those conversations are happening i suppose and that you're uh, you're only promising the things you know you can deliver. So two key takeaways for me there. One is it's important because sales are in the market talking to the customers to feed that back into the product team, but likewise not to have the roadmap uh, influenced too heavily by the feedback they're getting for customers because they will ask for lots of things that either aren't right for the for the product or the wider customer base. But the two need to communicate. Does your development team ever speak to customers? Um. Probably not as much as they should, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you'll be running all over the place if you're if you're trying to kind of do exactly what people are asking for because some people have quite outlandish uh, requirements. But um, so it, you've got to have some quite clear ideas. But I mean, I suppose we we try and sit down and the conversations we're having about the roadmap are focused on um, what we need as a business to obviously function and be able to kind of deliver to the clients we've got. But also what 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 we're hearing, and it, it's trying to make that a, a balance between the two things, and 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 quite a lot in the early days. Once you've you get to the point where you've built a product that works that sells, then you actually have to we found switch back a little bit. Say okay, that's great. Now we need to make this as scalable and effective and efficient for us as a company as possible, and that that's good for the customers too. Um, and then you can set off again with new whiz bangs. And so it's a bit of a kind of like make something that works, then really bed it in and make sure it's stable, it's enterprise ready. And that's and we've we've done that, which is fantastic. And then you can start widening back out again. So it's almost there's probably some some cycles of innovation there where you've got to go through these areas of stability to make sure that you're selling something that works. Otherwise, all that hard work, and in fact, that's another lesson we've we've spent a lot of time focused on last year was great we've got these customers we need them to renew and and we need our trials to be really successful so once you get people on the hook you've got to make sure that you actually are delivering as exceptionally to them otherwise what will all that effort work yeah there's, there can often be a lot of firefighting as well for existing customers where things that they need support on if you're too busy focused on winning new business and not maintaining business you're in a very awkward place when you start to lose those customers um, any other tips on uh, retention strategies that have worked well for Think Cyber? Uh, I mean, we we tried to systematize that a little bit more last year to be really clear cut about what what were the objectives that our, our customers had and what were they expecting to see and at what point did we need to start those conversations to to make sure everyone was happy. Um, I think we're still we're still learning that a little bit of kind of how to how to 
what's the processes we need to put in place to, to do that and some and some customers are just absolutely loving it and 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 have no doubt about renewing um others you 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 sometimes need to go back and think well let's be really clear why why did they buy this are when the year is up are they going to see that outcome um and 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 that can differ and you may not have even necessarily always had that conversation so you need to kind of realize that you need to have that conversation you need to know why they bought it because if the year comes around and they haven't actually achieved that thing then then you might not get the renewal yeah good advice tim fantastic uh, insights here is there anything else that you've learned uh, on this journey so far about the sales process from uh, founder-led sales that, that you want to share with the uh, audience yeah i mean i think a little bit is understanding that it's um that the people you're selling to especially in big corporates are, are busy people and sometimes weeks can go by and it's not necessarily that they don't like you that they're ignoring you they're just busy i mean i remember being in a big corporate role in, a, in a, running it and even when i wanted to buy something and i was engaged in a project weeks could go past with nothing happening because there's there was so much other stuff happening and so um, you've just got to be resilient and keep asking um, and, and keep pushing and not not get grumpy and cross um, because, they, they, I, I mean, I've found it loads of times. People will suddenly get back a month later and go, yeah, no, no, sorry, just being really busy. Yeah, I love this. I do want to move forward. And you're like, why could you not have replied for the last month? But you've just got to have that kind of resilience and go, look, look, look just keep going, keep going. It's not, don't give up because you're not getting a reply. It doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want your product. Great advice. Thank you, Tim. Um, we're going to wrap up quickly with a, a few quick fire questions for you. Um, now, these are a little, a little bit of fun, uh, specifically around this military theme of it's a constant battle to build these businesses. But let me start off by asking, when it comes to selling, what do you prefer? Frontal assault or flanking action? Uh, oh, my goodness. Flanking action sounds a bit manipulative, but it's not. I think flanking action, I think of kind of like feeding in surreptitiously that kind of really interesting new message and so people then realize they come they want to come to you so that over stacks of smoke straight up the middle yep great advice thank you um what's a good source of intelligence before you speak to a prospective customer what you found a particularly useful tool i think we should be better at this i'm not sure we're that that good at that i mean we we, we do looking at linkedin i suppose to see what people are talking about but um I'm not sure we're great at this one in terms of that source of intelligence. I think we're a bit kind of put our message out there and hope people come to us a little bit more at the moment. Well, it's worked quite well for you so far. So uh, something to, to build on. Um, when you're talking to a prospective customer, have you ever been ambushed by them? And, and if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, you get some strange responses sometimes. I had one a while back where someone's going, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, but we've seen loads of people doing this in the industry. And and I was so taken aback because I know that no one else can do what we're doing. Absolutely, categorically, I have seen nothing that does it. And so I didn't respond properly on the call. And then afterwards, I've been kind of like, please, could you tell me what these things are you've seen? And now I realise it was just a bit of a kind of go away. <laughs> I'm not interested. Or I don't know, a face saving. I don't know what it was. But um, it was a, a really odd one. And, and I'm kicking myself because I should have just said, held my ground. So that's really interesting. What could you tell me who or what what products you've seen that can do this because we haven't seen any um so that was a bit of a weird one and i didn't i i, I lost that ambush assault i think <laughs> came out licking my wounds and wishing i'd said something different did you change your behavior thereafter i mean do you now dive deeper into those throwaway comments that you get from prospects when you talk to them to say well tell me more about that yeah i think i i would and yeah it's i mean this is a comfort a constant confidence thing i think of building that kind of and and i've kind of my i still need to push myself further out of my my comfort zone to just to kind of and i'm definitely getting better at that kind of asking those difficult questions like is there so is there a project to do this is this going to happen if not can there be like is it definitely in the budget and when are we going to have that next follow-up meeting and i and some calls you can tell there's no point asking that question so you don't bother but others others yeah, there's a constant confidence and, and trying to think, right, next time I have a call, I'm going to say that uh, and, and, and building on that. 
because you see what works and you see what doesn't. So you, you've got to keep that open mind. Up. And it's often how you ask the question as well, isn't it? I mean, asking the budget question of whether or not there's a budget, sometimes it can be as simple as saying, where's, where's the money come from to fund something like this? And when asked that way, it's a lot less, you know, do you have the money? And much more about, have you thought about how you're going to pay for uh, solving this problem? Yeah, and it doesn't have to be, is there a project? It's like, is this, is this something you're actively working on now or is it, are you just kind of exploring what's out there, understanding what, how, how pressing the need is? Tim, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Where can people uh, get in touch with you? What, when can they learn more about uh, Think Cyber? Uh, yeah, well, um, LinkedIn is a great place. So, uh, I, I mean, obviously, I'm Tim Ward and, and we're we're at Think Cyber um, UK on Twitter and uh yeah, just, just think cyber on LinkedIn. But yeah, LinkedIn's probably the main place to, to look us up and uh, thinkcyber.co.uk on the web. Great. Well, look, thank you for your time today, Tim. It's been fascinating hearing your journey. Congratulations on what you've achieved with Think Cyber already. I've been part of your journey for the last uh, two, two or three years. It's been amazing to see how you've thrown yourself into uh, the sales role. And I know it didn't come easily to you in the beginning, but it's paying dividends now. And I'm sure there are a lot of founders that will take uh, a lot away from our discussion today that they can use to help them build uh, their company. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Phil. And yeah, it's been, it's been fun going on the journey and uh, thanks for all your support throughout the years. And that wraps up our insightful conversation with Tim Ward, a founder who overcame his initial discomfort in asking for business and who has today emerged as an authentic seller, tackling a pressing issue with innovative solutions. Throughout our discussion, Tim shared his experiences in establishing ThinkCyber as a thought leader by leveraging conferences and social media. In particular, he emphasised the value of creating a daily habit of sharing insights on LinkedIn to boost awareness and credibility in his industry. Tim's journey from reluctant salesperson to a genuine rainmaker serves as an inspiration for us all, proving that with dedication and the right strategies, it's possible to overcome obstacles and achieve success. My challenge to you this week is to post on LinkedIn every day for the next six weeks, just as Tim did. If you're unsure about what to share, consider using GPT Chat, a powerful tool that has made content creation so much easier compared to when I challenged Tim to do the same. As you've heard, adopting this daily practice proved vital in helping him connect with his customer base, and it can do the same for you. If you're interested in learning more about content creation or even exploring GPT Chat further, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter, where you'll find me as at Phil guest with a Y. Alternatively, you can email me directly at phil at revcelerate.com. For more inspiring stories like Tim's, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask my guests, don't hesitate to email me at the same address, phil at revcelerate.com. Together, let's continue exploring the journeys of innovative entrepreneurs. Thank you for tuning in to Behind Startup Lines. Join us next time for more captivating stories from founders who are reshaping the business world. And remember, when you think you're done, you're only ever 40% done. So keep going. This is Behind Startup Line signing off. Over and out.